Um, I'm pretty sure I know you all, but in case you don't know who I am, my name is Greg, um, and I am uh, a member of the Central Churlton Missional Community. I'm just going to move some of these things around a little bit. Um, and uh, thank, very thankful to have our American friends here, and thankful to have whoever might be joining us online as well. Um, before we begin chatting about this, just think of you are a very, very rich person. So you have all the money in the world. And you're like, you know what I want to do? I want to create my own country. I want to have like not just my own house, not my own estate, my own country. And so what you would do is you would get loads of sand from somewhere, put it off in some international waters and make an island and you can create your own country. And you can be the king of your own kind of newly established nation. You create a flag. You choose an official language. You even compose a national anthem. wonder what that would be like. Uh, and you, sta- you ha- eventually you have to establish economy. Now, eventually, maybe some of your friends see this place and are like, oh, this is pretty cool. I kind of want to live in this guy's country. And so some of your friends move over and join in. And there comes a point. There will come a point at some level where there will have to be a way of like, this is how we live here. This is what it means to live here. This is uh, basically a form of government of some kind. These are laws. These are what we do. This is what we do. This is what we don't do. We don't kill people. Or, you know, whatever kind of maybe you do in your country. I don't know what you're up to. But as the newly established nation's supreme leader and monarch, you'll have to communicate this somehow to your happy new subjects that you're going to have in this new beautiful utopia of yours. Now, this is exactly what Jesus is doing in these verses. He's kind of, and, and not only just these, this particular section, but the rest of the Sermon on the Mount. He's talking about what is it like to live in his country? What is it like to live in his kingdom? He's communicating uh, what it's like to be a part of what Jesus is doing, this kingdom that's not just a small little island in the middle of nowhere, but something that's covering the entire earth. You know, there are all sorts of benefits to Jesus' kingdom. We talked about some of them uh, last week, and we'll talk about some of them this week, and we'll continue to talk about them as Jesus talks about his kingdom. Uh, Some of that is you get to actually see God. You get to see God. You get God's comfort, like Surely God's comfort's better than any other comfort that might be going on in the world. You get real satisfaction. You get to be members of God's family. But what Jesus is talking about here is what does it mean to live within it? He's not necessarily talking about so much of the, the benefits as what it means, what's the cost to live there. So Jesus, in telling us about how to live in his world, he's teaching us about doing the right thing or living the good life. Now, if you don't think that we care very much about these things that we're going to talk about today, make a mistake driving on the motorway, and see what happens. What happens if you make a mistake driving? People are going to let you know. It doesn't even have to affect them. They're going to beep. They're going to say, oh, you can't do that. You can't undertake. You're not allowed to do that. Or you can't you know, turn there, or the, you're doing the wrong thing on the roundabout. Even if people are like three or four car lengths back, people will care. Or what about the controversy with Holly and Phil and jumping the queue to see the queen lying in state? I wasn't in that queue. Very few people actually probably were in that queue. But everyone seemed to care a lot about it. Why? Why do we care so much about that? Because we care about people doing things as they ought to be done. You don't have to be in that queue to have an opinion. And as much as we might tut at celebrities in queues or jumping queues or whatever actually happened there, none of us have the ability to actually really know all the rules of life ourselves. Like We just don't have the innate ability. We have a good sense of something right ought to be done, but we generally aren't great at applying that all the time. The problem is we think that we are. That's actually the problem. We think we have the answers, and that becomes a big part of the problem. Thankfully, what we have here at the Sermon on the Mount is Jesus laying out what it looks like to live in his kingdom. He's very clear. What are the rules when Jesus is in rule? 
And Jesus is honest. He doesn't kind of like secretly say things or kind of hide behind uh, once they get in. They don't tell him the real heavy stuff. No, he's honest from the beginning. Like it's difficult and this is what it looks like. Now last week we talked about what it meant to be salt and light. These next verses in Jesus' manifesto tell us more about his kingdom, what it means to live in his kingdom. And those first two verses, so definitely, if you have your Bible or if you have an app, keep it open. We're going to be looking at those verses in particular. The first two verses are about Jesus' kingdom arriving and what that looks like, the arrival of the kingdom. And this is is the kind of broad stroke with this is Jesus gets to set the agenda because he's God. Jesus gets to set the agenda. And uh, the Old Testament is where Jesus starts. He talks about the law and the prophets. That's a way to say like the entire Old Testament. Uh, He's saying, uh, in fact, when you read it, he seems to care very much about the Old Testament. And Jesus isn't saying, like, these things are now done away with because I'm here. Like, this isn't like now a completely new thing, although something new happens. And, and surely you have to think, some people, when they heard Jesus spoke, they're probably like, we've never heard anyone speak like this before. No one has had this kind of level also of, like, a personal authority before in a way that they could actually follow through. And maybe even sometimes when we read these words, and when we read the New Testament, we're like, this is completely different from this other half of the book, the left side of the book. Like, what, what's going on here? The God of the New Testament. Is it different than the God of the Old Testament? Or maybe they thought that if you follow Jesus, the Old Testament actually doesn't matter anymore. Well, Jesus wants to set us straight because he knew we would have these questions. What Jesus says first is nothing is abolished. Do not think I've come to abolish the law and the problem. Jesus is not doing away with the Old Testament. They're God's words, and they'll always be God's words. And when Jesus says uh, they're going to stay basically until heaven and earth disappear, this is an idiom of basically saying like until hell freezes over. Like It's never going to happen. Like They'll always be here. And it will always remain because it's God's words. Jesus is God. So to ask Jesus, hey, God, what do you think of your words? Like, surely he's like, well, I think they're pretty good because of seven. Like, I'm all about them, actually. Like, there's a reason why they're here. So God actually cares about his own words. Now, maybe your second question or questions would be like, oh, well, but like, there's some really crazy stuff. In you. Have you read about, like, are we allowed to cut our sideburns? Are we allowed to wear, like, two pieces of cloth? Or what about, like, sacrifices? What in the world is up with that? There are many questions there, zero of which we will actually deal with today because we just don't have time. But if you are interested in any kind of particular questions, or if I'm going too quickly and you're like, hang on, can you like explain that a little bit better? If you go to redeemermcr.com slash ask, you can anonymously put questions in and we'll talk about them after the sermon. But what Jesus says here, and I think this is the thing we'll just have time to focus on, he didn't come to abolish the Old Testament, he came to fulfill them. And that's actually the difference here. What does it mean to fulfill Allah. What does it mean to fulfill the prophets? What, what, what exactly does Jesus mean there? And if you remember, we've been talking about this a lot in Matthew, if you remember from the autumn. Uh, Jesus, the fulfillment in Matthew is a massive theme. Jesus fulfills Israel's story. Jesus fulfills Moses, the Moses story of Moses. He's a new and better Moses. Jesus is being kind of the obedient son that God never has. It's all this kind of fulfillment stuff. And Matthew will continue to talk about that. And But Jesus himself here is saying, like, I've come to fulfill this stuff. What, what, what in the world is he talking about? Well, in the Old Testament, it's many things. You have the law, like how we're supposed to worship God. You have stories of judgment. You have stories of mercy, stories of rescue, stories of restoration. But what it doesn't have is an ending. The Old Testament is a story without an ending. And there was basically, it kind of ended on a low note, the Old Testament. Like Israel kind of followed God, and there were some blessings, and they kind of got complacent, and then everything disintegrated and went. And then there was hundreds of years of silence, nothing. And then Jesus comes. And Jesus comes, don't think I've done away with all that, but something new is happening because I've come to fulfill them. 
It's kind of a little bit like Jerry Maguire. The Old Testament, to, Jesus to the Old Testament, you complete me. Without Jesus, the Old Testament is a story in search of an ending that will never have it. But with Jesus, now finally the Old Testament makes sense and it can be completed in all, through all the words that Jesus is saying. So if the Old Testament is, in, is a story in need of an ending, it kind of like if this was a film today, this would be like when the hero would show up. Like the town is in need and now the bat signals up in the dark and finally Batman shows up. And this is Jesus coming on the scene. I've, I'm here and here's what it's like to live in my kingdom. I'm not doing away with all this, but this is a new thing and I'm going to continue in the line that I've been telling you for hundreds and thousands of years. And Jesus, through fulfilling the Old Testament, he's saying all those stories that you know really well because these people would know all those stories, they're actually all about me. In Luke 24, 27, Jesus will tell the disciples the same thing. All those stories, everything about the law and the prophets, everything Moses wrote, it's actually it's all about me. I am the ending to all of those stories. I am what make those stories make sense. They all anticipate my arrival. Now, fulfilling doesn't do away with the thing, but it definitely changes the thing. And so the Old Testament may not be abolished, but there are changes when the king comes. There's a newness. And it's through that lens that we can understand sacrifices, we can understand dietary laws, we can understand all sorts of other things that we're actually not going to do anything about this morning because we just don't have the time to get into it. But if you have questions, please send them in because I'll try and deal with them in a subpar way right after the sermon. So uh, all this means that Jesus and the arrival of the kingdom continues these lines of the Old Testament, but now is also new at the same time. If you've been around the church, or maybe if you haven't, maybe you've heard something to this effect, like the God of the Old Testament, he's vindictive, he's demanding, but the God of the New Testament, he's very nice, he's kind of chill, he's like a hippie in Birkenstocks, just wanting to hang out with people. Hey, like, he's just a mate. New Testament God is a mate. Old Testament God is like an angry like, stepfather or something like that. It's a little bit like this meme. I don't like the Old Testament. A mean God, no thanks. But the New Testament chill God, yeah, he's a guy I can get along with because he just wants to hang out with me. Well, both of these are wrong, of course, because it is the same God. And we don't have time to talk about all the gracious and loving acts that God the Father did in the Old Testament. And we don't have time to talk about all of the, the difficult kind of words about punishment and things like that that Jesus in the New Testament talks about. We will briefly talk about that today. But it's the same exact God. And what we find here is that Jesus has a very high bar as we listen to his words. A very high bar. He's not uh, disapproving and harsh. He's loving and he's telling us what it looks like to live in his kingdom, which is actually the best thing for us. And since he's the king, and it's his kingdom, he kind of gets to set the rules, just as if you were to make that own island yourself. Now, up until now, you may have been like, why in the world are we studying like this Old Testament, New Testament stuff? I actually don't care. This is some kind of like theological point that people cared 2,000 years ago with Jesus, but it actually doesn't even matter now. But here's the big, here's the reason why it doesn't matter, because into our darkness now, into our silence now, like right now, literally now, as, as we got to hear these words, God himself is injecting himself into our story. He wasn't just someone who set some, something and then left and then left of our own devices. He has injected himself into our story. And he did it by becoming a man and telling us these words that we even get to listen to today. Isn't it crazy to think we can hear the same words that Jesus preached 2,000 years ago right now and they have that same kind of effect in our hearts? That's one of the reasons why it matters for that Old Testament God and New Testament God to be the same. It's the same God speaking the same words of life and for people who really need it. And of course, he's the king, and this is his kingdom, so it might be worth seeing, hearing what he has to say about it. 
And more than a theological point, what he's doing is claiming absolute authority. He's saying, I am the king. This is early on in Jesus' ministry. He's not saying, oh, maybe eventually I'll kind of become a king. He is the king. He's setting the rules. And that is a big deal because if he is the king, that means I'm not. And that's a difficult thing. So in this kingdom, Jesus has a high bar. There are demands in his kingdom, and he's actually quite upfront about us. Let's kind of briefly look at these. If you look at verses 19 through 20, Jesus says, Anyone who sets aside at least of one of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be the least in the kingdom. But those who actually do these things will be the greatest in the kingdom. And they may not be the greatest on earth, but they'll be the greatest in my kingdom. To be the greatest, you must practice them and teach them to others. This is about the rules of life, how we are to live. And what Jesus is talking about is just simple obedience, kind of what Tim was praying about earlier. But we know Jesus is all about love, right? And the Bible says that God is love. So how do these two things connect? Sometimes love and obedience can feel disconnected from each other. But that really not ought to be, especially in a healthy relationship. Love and obedience is always connected. They ought to be connected. Uh, Sinclair Ferguson is a famous Scottish pastor and theologian. Use the analogy of a train and tracks to describe how love and obedience work together. He kind of says, like, love is like a train. Like by itself, it doesn't really do anything. You need tracks to run on. But obedience, tracks by itself, that doesn't do anything either. But if you get the train on the tracks, then you actually can go somewhere. You can actually do something. With love and obedience together, and that there's a purpose there. There's, there's a literal driving there when it comes to a train. And that's the kind of the relationship between love and obedience. It's not just one or the other but it's them together, working together in tandem. And Jesus here, what he's doing is he's giving us the rails of the kingdom, of where, how we ought to live, where we're supposed to go. Obedience is the right application of God's love. And we need the rails because we so easily go off of them. So there are demands of the kingdom, yes, but ultimately it's good for us, just as a track is good for a train. Without a track, the train is useless. And that means that nobody has the right to set aside some parts of Jesus' kingdom and not others. To say to Jesus, like, when you said that, that's cool, and I like that, and I'll follow that. But when you said that, that's not cool, and I'm not going to follow that. So I'm just going to, like, I'll have this version of Jesus that I'm going to follow. That's not really following Jesus. It's following some version of it, some contorted version of it. If we follow Jesus, that means we follow Jesus, all of him. Now, there are things you do not like in here. There are things I do not like in here. And I know that because you're a human being. (laughs) If, God's, if you were God, you wouldn't have a problem with any of these things, but you're not. So, of course, you have a problem with these things. Everyone does. So, don't, don't kind of assume like, oh, I'm the only one who might be offended by this thing or this thing or this particular area is really offensive to me. Yeah, it's probably offensive to everybody. All of this is offensive to us. So, we shouldn't really be too surprised when God's way of doing things clashes with our way of doing things. The question is, when that clash happens, what do we do? What do we do? And that actually really will tell you whose authority you are kind of submitting to. Are you surrendering to your own view of the way things ought to be? Or are you surrendering to how God is calling us to live? Because ultimately, it is his rule. And his rule, not even necessarily talking about his rules, but surrendering to his authority. That's what, it's, that's what Jesus is talking about here. He's the king. Not our fickle cultural climate. Not other people. Not you. Not me. And this is incredibly difficult. I mean, think 100 years ago, the cultural values that were going on there. If 100 years ago, all of us Christians got together and be like, okay, well, this is really what Christianity is going to be like, that would be disastrous for where we are now. Think 100 years from now, there are going to be issues we don't even know what they are 100 years from now. You, like, people who are two or three generations removed from us will be embarrassed about some of the things that we believe and some of the things that we practice. I don't know what those things are going to be, just as people 100, 200 years ago didn't know what those things would be today. But they're going to be there. 
So to contort how we ought to live uh, in response to how we feel in the moment is just going to eventually, those rails will lead us down the wrong path. That's not ultimately following Jesus. That's ultimately following what we think we ought to do. And again, we should expect to be offended. Now, Jesus um, goes further in verse 20, talking about obedience. He says, For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of the heaven. Now, Pharisees and teachers, they were like professional good people. Like, they were like the goodies of, of, of you know, uh, Elspeth had me up as some kind of holy person. Um, but they would be like the really the holy people, like whoever is like a pope or a monk or, I don't know, what a professional holy person looks like here. The Mother Teresa's of the world, the Gandhi's, all that kind of stuff. Those are the my, most righteous kind of people, the Pharisees, teachers of the law. And remember, righteous is just another word saying good. So the, the, the most good people that the world has. And Jesus says, you must do better than them. Are you better than Gandhi? What if you told your friends, yeah, I think I've surpassed Gandhi in my goodness. Like, yeah, like there's something wrong with you there. It's probably everyone would think. I mean, how do you feel when you hear that? We don't have a problem with Pharisees because, you know, we don't use that term anymore unless we're talking about these words here. But are you better than Gandhi? You have to be to enter Jesus' kingdom. That kind of freaks me out a little bit. Imagine what the original audience must have thought. Better than these professional good people. Well, these teachers, these Pharisees, they're examples of very religious people who didn't surrender to God. They like some parts. They don't like everything. They were very enthusiastic about following their rules. The people who Jesus attacked most viciously were these rule-following, very religious people, which maybe ought to give us church people some pause. Now, it wasn't the enthusiasm for obedience that was wrong. That's a very good thing. But it was, who, it was the heart motivation and who they were surrendering to in front of God himself, working to kill God himself and all the power that they had. It was all about them. And it doesn't take much of an imagination to think of the secular versions of teachers and Pharisees of our time. There are clear cultural lines that we have to stay within, and if we transgress that, all hell breaks loose. If you have any questions about that, because there could be lots of hot-button topics there that I, I'm like conveniently sidestepping right now because we don't have a lot of time. And any particular thing, yeah, but what about this and what about this? Send them in because we can chat about them. Don't hesitate to send them in. I think it probably also ought not to be a massive stretch to understand how it's not so much about other people, Pharisees, teachers of the law, people who think they're great, people who think they're awesome, as much as really about us, how we think about ourselves. We think our goodness is really good. Jesus isn't talking about beating the teachers and the Pharisees at their own game, though. What he's saying is you need a different kind of righteousness, a different kind of goodness altogether. You don't have to play this game, that rat race game, where actually nobody really wins. You, this is a whole different world, a whole different thing I'm asking you to be a part of. Not more the same, but something new and altogether different. This kind of righteousness that Jesus is talking about is not an outside-in thing. It's an inside-out thing. It requires, it's a very radical thing because it requires us to be changed in who we are first before we actually do anything else. Every other area of life, every other, other philosophy, every other religion, whatever, it always says, do the right thing, live the right way, and that will make you good. Eat this, don't eat this. Like this, don't like this. Buy this thing, don't buy this thing. Vote for this political party, not this political party. Hang out with these kinds of people. Use this kind of term. Whatever the thing might be, we all have versions of that. And they all look different. And we all use them to kind of fool ourselves that we're really good. None of those things are good enough. Jesus says you will never be good. You have to have a different righteousness 
all together. No amount of what we do has the power to change of who we are in the way that we need it. And we might be able to get incrementally better, and that can be a good thing, but it's just not enough for God because he demands perfection. He, Jesus demands internal goodness. He's telling us here. He demands it himself. The kind that starts with who we are first then goes out to what we do. Now, again, this righteousness word is a very religious word, right? And maybe you think that we don't really care much about it. Of course we do. To be righteous means to be fair in everything. Everyone wants to be fair. Someone not being fair, that's horrible, right? We don't want that. To be just in all things, we want to be just. To not just be seen as upright and good, but actually be good. We all have that question about ourselves. Am I actually a good person? Like, why do we care when someone jumps a key when we're not even in it? Because we care a lot about righteousness. You ask most people why they should go to heaven, which is shorthand of being what Jesus is talking about here, why people should be in the kingdom of God. People say, well, I'm mostly good. So 51% of our own internal goodness and how we view it ourselves is good enough for God. And it ought to be, it's good enough for me. It ought to be good enough for God. We have faith in our own righteousness. We also want to be righteous ourselves in a very good way. All, everybody I know, I only maybe know like one or two psychopaths. So maybe minus the one or two psychopaths. Everybody does actually want to be good. And we all, we all have that desire. We want to be people who help others and do good. And maybe we're okay at some of those things. We donate to some things. Maybe we show up to church or all those kind of things. But that can be bad for us as well because it can show us that, you know, or it can falsely teach us that we're good enough to just kind of make it through. Now, those things are not bad. Let's do more of those things. But when Jesus looks at those things, as good as they might be, they're not good enough. Oh, you preach? Oh, that's nice. It's not good enough to enter my kingdom. That's, I'm glad you preach. Oh, you're part of a missional community. You're part of a church. You're part of a church plant. Whatever the thing might be. All those things are great. They're not good enough to enter my kingdom, though. I, mean, I don't know. I, I, I assume this is, the answer to this is no, but has anyone here ever sold all their possessions and given all their money to the poor? Nobody? Even if you did that? I would love to meet that person because they'd be the most self-sacrificial, generous person I've probably ever met in my life. Even if you did that, just be like, oh, that's really great. It's not good enough to enter my kingdom, though, but I'm really glad you did that. I'm glad you're a generous person. Think of all the good things you've ever done. Okay, try and big up yourself uh, for a moment here. Every, every good thing that you've ever done, make it even inflate it by two, and even the things that were sort of good or not good, turn that into a good thing. So all you're, you're thinking of yourself in the best possible scenario, and you're putting them end to end. You're stacking them end to end. You're like, this is going to be amazing. Look how high this is going to go. None of that. As great as you are, and I know you people are great. As great as you are, it is not gonna, it's not going to reach heaven. It just never will. It is impossible to get there. The kind of righteousness that Jesus is talking about is different. And when we realize how needy we are, how far away from him we actually are, with all the things that might be good, with all the things that truly are not good, when we realize that, what we can really do is appreciate the gift that Jesus gives us for all those who surrender to his love. We don't have to work like hell for it, which is a great way to put it, by the way, because it's exactly what that feels like. We don't have to work like hell for it. We're given to it, and we're given it as a gift. It's not something we earn. It's something that he gives. He gives a whole new kind of goodness embedded in the core of who we are. And that's really, really good news for people who know that they need it. The only one who can give this kind of righteousness is the one who has it to begin with. Other people might claim to be able to give it, but no one else actually has it. Jesus actually has it, and he gives it. Because he lived a perfect life and his perfection wasn't merely superficial. It wasn't something to kind of just show how amazing he was, although that was part of it. It was inside out, it was complete, so he could be generous with it and give it to us. That's what we get as people who are Christians. 
And this is the crazy thing about the cross. When Jesus died, he took all of our brokenness upon himself and through his resurrection, gives us all the righteousness that we need to be part of his kingdom. It's like a lose-lose for Jesus, but a win-win for us. He gets all the bad stuff. He gets to give away all the good stuff. And we get all of our bad stuff. No, everyone's safe back there. That's a party. We just broke loads of bottles, I think. We'll worry about that later. Okay. Very good. Well, one glass. One glass shelf. Sweet. We'll continue. So parts of the pub are breaking off. Um, that was uh, planned because it was like it's like the same thing of like saying sex in the middle of a sermon. It's kind of like, oh, all of a sudden people are awake. Um, we weren't talking about sex, sorry. Or actually, you're welcome. But the, uh, <laughs> so Wow, right in the middle of the cross. A crash happened. Um, so everyone's fine. Very good. Sweet. Right, Charlotte? Right, cool. The, uh, so <laughs> the righteousness that we can't get for ourselves, Jesus won it. How in the world do you come back from something like that? I don't even know, but we'll try. The righteousness that we can't get for ourselves, Jesus won it for us at great cost to himself, and now he freely gives it away to anyone who asks. So for those who are poor in spirit, who, for those who know that you can't actually be good in yourself, and you do, you have those thoughts, you try and push them down, but you have them, what we, what we get is we get to be delivered from our well-intentioned but ultimately impotent goodness, goodness that we all have. And Jesus gives us everything that we need, everything that we need. And if this is you, if you're one of those people like me, that you're like, oh, I kind of believe in my own goodness, and maybe you don't even have a relationship with Jesus, and you're kind of like, yeah, I'm kind of like that as well. Wherever you are with Jesus, whether you're like, I don't know what his deal is, I don't even know if he existed, or actually I'm not sure he's a really good person, to I'm completely bought in, he's the Lord of everything. Wherever you are with Jesus, maybe this would be the first time or the hundredth time to talk to him and tell him briefly about what we were chatting about today. To tell him you're done following your own path, you want to be like the engine running full steam on the right rails, you're done with your own goodness, and you want some of his. And the great thing, the crazy thing, the insane thing is when you do that, he actually listens and he gives it to you. Like you ask him for it and he actually just kind of gives it to you. That doesn't make any sense. I feel like I should work hard and kind of prove and earn it or something like that. But you just say, Jesus, I need this. It's like, okay, yeah. And he just gives it to you. That's crazy. That's mind-boggling crazy. I don't think I'll ever get over that. He gives it to us. And the great benefits that we get uh, is not just for in the future, but for now, because having Jesus' goodness now enables us to live the righteous life that we actually all kind of probably want to live as we get to live in his kingdom. Only those who surrender to Christ's authority will get in on this. But the thing is, anyone can get in on this. And if you surrender to Christ's authority, you get to also surrender to his love. You get to also surrender to his goodness. You get to also surrender to his comfort and all the other things. And we get to be made a new creation, as the Bible says. Now, so far, this has maybe been a little bit abstract. You're like, well, that's really good information. What, what does that actually mean in my life? Well, where Jesus goes next is he goes right to the heart of it. He goes right to murder. He doesn't like kind of slowly step in. He's, he goes to murder. So um, let's talk about how living in the kingdom is practically worked out and what it means when we get angry, basically. The arrival of the kingdom means the hero is here. The demands of the kingdom tell us we need a new kind of goodness, one that the hero gives us. 
and then we get right to murder. Murder is something, we get it, it's bad, right? No one's like, oh, actually, murder is kind of okay. No, everyone thinks murder is bad. It's bad to kill a person. But anger, Jesus makes it sound like that's just as bad. Surely that's not as bad. Have you ever called someone an idiot? You've probably not, not shouted raka at someone before. That just means like fool. From like, oh, raka. That's not something you kind of hear, not something that's memed often. But it just means calling someone an idiot, calling someone a moron, calling someone stupid. You've probably done that before. I think probably, maybe once in your life. See if you can reach back in your memories. Think of when you called someone a fool. Jesus is equating that with murder. That feels a little different. Like, what's the deal here? What's the penalty here? Jesus says, the fire of hell. That's, Jesus, that's pretty intense. And this word for hell, was, uh, it was a, uh, a valley, like a pit outside of the city that um, used to be used for when uh, people would worship other gods, used to be used for human sacrifice, and now was like this rubbish tip that was always smoldering, always on fire, never going out. And that's like the symbol for what people who are angry and call people fools deserve. That's intense. What is Jesus talking about here? Practically speaking, let me, let's just say, murder is worse than an insult. Like if you kill somebody, Practically, your life is going to change a lot more differently than if you just saw, call someone a fool. But Jesus is concerned with our heart and our relationship with other, not just other people, but with him. So though, though being angry and calling someone a fool uh, may have less practical implications than actually murdering somebody, when it comes to our relationship with God, it's exactly the same. Because it's either it's a one or a zero. You're either in, you're out. You're either perfect or you're not perfect. Only hearts changed by Jesus, those who have surrendered to him are allowed in his kingdom. It's a very high bar. Even the most well-meaning and mild-mannered person can't live this way. It's impossible for people to live this way perfectly. But now look, let's look briefly at the positive side of living in God's kingdom, where he talks about being in conflict with somebody. So you can be in conflict with somebody, you, instead of getting angry, whether calling them a name or even straight up murdering them, we can be delivered from that. Instead of getting all worked up, if you've ever had a relationship that just where you've been angry and you can't get out of, that's a difficult way to live. It's hard to get unstuck from that. Instead of all getting worked up, trying to inflict pain on others, we can be freed from anger and live in peace with other people. This is actually the positive side of what it means to live in his kingdom. We can actually be the peacemakers that Jesus was t talking about last week. And the same idea with the lawsuit situation here that Jesus talks about. Jesus is putting this in the context of the worshiping community of the church. He's saying, if you're worshiping God and someone has a problem with you, Jesus wants you to stop worshiping God, make it right with that person, and then come back to worship him. He doesn't want you to stop worshiping God and never do it again, but he wants you to stop worshiping God in order to make peace with that person, to, to make things right. That's how much our relationships matter because Jesus wants what goes on on earth to reflect what goes on in heaven. And every time we don't, we're kind of living a lie. Now notice too, Jesus does not seem to care too much about fault. He's not saying if someone is coming after you and they, like, you didn't even deserve it or this person did it, so they deserved it. Like, Jesus doesn't care about fault at all. We all get caught up in that. We say, oh, he did this to me, therefore it's okay for me to blank them or not talk to them or whatever or not say hello. I could probably say hello, but I'm not going to do it because I'm going to be getting back at them. We replay it in our heads over and over and over. It stops us. We get stuck. It arrests who we are. It stops us from having peace. It stops relationships from growing. So even when someone is suing you, or someone is to do that, that surely would get you angry. Even when that is happening, don't try and get back at them. Even at the last minute on your way to seeing the judge in court trying to make things right, do what you can in order to make peace as much as it depends on you. 
Now left to our own devices, with our own righteousness, anger leads to harsh words, broken relationships, fractured feelings, being disconnected from each other. That is a lonely way to live. And you stay in that for a long time, and it feels like the status quo. You feels like you get stuck. But living in Jesus' kingdom, with his righteousness, we get to be freed from that kind of slavery. We get to be freed from that kind of stuckness. We can forgive and make things right, even when it's not our fault. If your life feels stuck because of anger, know that you don't have to live yourself, to live that way. You know, sometimes we dupe ourselves into thinking that if I forgive them or if I live in a gracious way, that's kind of like, you know, I'm giving them a gift they don't deserve. And that's kind of what forgiveness is, is giving someone gifts that they don't deserve. What we do instead, though, to, to not do that is we kind of, to get back at them, we, we stay stuck in that, we stay kind of isolated, and we slowly take this poison pill every single day to try and get back at that person. And then eventually, it, that problem goes beyond that person, and it kind of seeps out sideways. And now our hearts are closed off more in general than they were before. We're more lonely and isolated than we were before. We're not going to be as vulnerable with as many people as we were before, just because we had that issue with that one person to begin with. So Jesus, in these verses here, he holds out a high bar. And at the outset, it looks like it's impossible to be part of his kingdom. And by ourselves, that is completely true. We cannot do it. We cannot do it. We aren't good enough. And if we're really honest, we all deserve to be in that prison. We all deserve to be in the fire of hell. But Jesus, the hero of our story, offers us a way into his kingdom. And it's kind of crazy because Jesus might just be God. He might just know a little bit more than we do. He might just know that we actually have this issue more than we know ourselves. He might know that the bar is too high for us to enter ourselves. He might just know that. I don't know. Just a thought I had just a second ago. Now, of course, he made a way himself. In fact, Jesus calls himself the way. He doesn't call himself a way. He calls himself the way. I am the way to God. For all who have ever been angered at someone else, we are murderers. Murderers aren't allowed in. The pain we want to inflict on others in our darkest moments, Jesus took that pain upon himself. He was never angry like this. He, was, he never murdered anyone, but he became like a murderer for us, someone who never deserved it. He was hung up on the cross like a criminal, taking our anger and our brokenness to give us a new life in his kingdom. So for Jesus, being the way meant taking on all that we deserve, the fire of hell itself, and through his death and his resurrection, he didn't just remove us from that punishment, which would have been amazing in itself, but what he does is he gives us a new life. He takes all our bad and we get all the good. Only the goodness Christ gives can truly free me now in my life as I stand here now to give me the kind of life I want to live. And the same is true for all of us. He says the entire Old Testament is about me. This entire, the biggest portion of your Bible is all about me. And now, because I'm here, this story without an ending does have an ending. And he asks us to surrender. And again, this is the crazy and scandalous thing about Christianity. We give our brokenness and we get his goodness. When he died on the cross, that was an end to the regime of our own darkness, our own oppressive rule of doing things our way, of trying to make our own way. And Jesus leads us into his new kingdom, his new government, his new way of doing things, a new way of being. Only those who surrender to Jesus' authority will get in on this. But of course, anyone can get in on this. And in Jesus' new life at his resurrection, he gives us a different kind of righteousness, a different kind of goodness. It's himself. It's him. We get him, the Holy Spirit, in us. And when his goodness comes to invade our dark hearts, we're made new. As, he, as the Bible says, a new creation. 
one that has God himself, the Holy Spirit in us, and we can live in this new way. And for all